words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Now we've reached the point in our consideration of that statement, at which we are particularly interested in and concerned about the meaning of this expression, the wiles of the devil. And I've been suggesting that we can look at that along two main lines. That very clearly in the New Testament and in the subsequent history of the Christian church, we are taught and are able to see that the devil has exercised these wiles of his in a very general way by producing states and conditions in the body of the church, as it were big movements within the church, such as uh, heretical movements, or definite examples of apostasy in certain sections of the Christian church. Or, uh, as uh, we have seen it also in the fact of schism, wrong divisions in the church. And then we've been considering the uh, whole teaching of the cults, these false religions, bodies, which set themselves up, as it were, alongside the church and would persuade many that they're truly Christian. Well, now there we've been looking at the exercise of the wiles of the devil in a very general way. But now we come to the more particular, to the more personal, and to the more individual activities of the devil. And here, of course, is something that is essential for our consideration. It's not only as essential as what we've been looking at, but in many ways, of course, it's even more essential. Because here is something that can happen to individuals in the church, while the church herself may be more or less healthy. You see, the subject is a very large one. There is almost no limit to the ways in which the devil in his desire to spoil the work of God in Christ, uh, attacks God's people. He'll try it on a big scale, he'll try it in very individual instances, and he doesn't care how, as long as he brings any individual Christian or any group of Christians into a state of bondage and of unhappiness, and thereby mars their testimony to the exceeding riches of his grace in and through his dear Son. Well, now, this uh, subject of the uh, wiles of the devil as they're experienced by us as individual Christians is one that has often been uh, dealt with uh, in literature. 
Take, for instance, a, a famous book like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. That is really the theme of that book. He pictures there how uh, men, first of all, is convicted of his sin and uh, escapes from the city of destruction and is in great trouble until his burden rolls away at the cross of Christ. But his troubles are not ended then. The rest of the story is nothing really but a, a very graphic and wonderfully pictorial account of the wiles of the devil. And Bunyan wrote it in order that he might help struggling pilgrims who are exposed to these wiles as they go through this journey called life. His holy war is um, uh, a similar treatise, and likewise the whole obvious teaching in man's soul. Now, all, all this was just Bunyan's way, and a very helpful way it is, this allegorical method of introducing people to the wiles of the devil, in order that being forewarned, they should be forearmed. You get the same thing in many other Puritan writings of 300 years ago. Famous book, for instance, by Richard Sibbs is called The Soul's Conflict. Another one called The Bruised Reed. Robert Bolton writes a book called Comforting Afflicted Consciences. Now, most of the writings and the sermons of that great generation of preachers was devoted to this subject of the wiles of the devil as they are manifested in the lives of individual Christian believers. And, of course, at this point, uh, one can say very accurately that you get the same thing even in Roman Catholic literature. Whatever their deficiencies, and we've been looking at them, they, at any rate, are quite clear about the devil and about his wiles. And that is why they've always had large numbers of so-called manuals of devotion, the object and the intention of which has been to help Christian people to deal with these various problems that arise. And furthermore, their whole system of what is called casuistry is in many ways also dealing, uh, is something that deals with this particular problem. Thus, you see, there has been in the past a very great and wealthy literature dealing with this subject, showing, in other words, how in practice, in the subsequent history of the Christian Church, what the Apostle warns these Ephesians against at this point, it has been a constantly recurring problem. Now that leads me to make another remark as I introduce this subject. It has been a very striking fact about Christian life in this century, and indeed since about 1880, and I'm referring particularly to evangelical Christian life, it has been a very striking fact that there has been a curious absence of this kind of literature. I wonder whether you've ever noticed that. Can you think of any books that deal with the wiles of the devil that have been written in the last 80 years or so? Now, why is that, you think? This which was so characteristic of the Puritan era, and these books which were used and read so much by all who came under the powerful influence of the evangelical revival of the 18th century, and who continued to read these books until about 1860 or 1880. Suddenly, all this stopped, and these books, which had been reprinted constantly, were no longer reprinted. They were not replaced by any others. Nobody seemed to be concerned about this conflict against the principalities and powers, about how to stand against the wiles of the devil. I'm calling your attention to it. 
because I think it is a very interesting commentary on what has been happening during the last 80 years or so. There is only one explanation. It is, it is this. There has been a type of holiness teaching, a teaching on sanctification, which rarely has left no room for this at all. It has had one point which it has gone on repeating, claiming that that can solve all the problems. And thus, you see, the whole of the Christian life has been reduced to just surrender and abiding in Christ. And this whole aspect has never been given any consideration whatsoever. I just ask you again to consult the literature, look at the book lists, consider what you've heard yourselves. How often have you heard men preaching and how often have you seen books which are given to this question of the wiles of the devil and our wrestling not against flesh and blood but against the principalities and powers, etc. It's a very interesting commentary and it, it seems to me to be the main explanation in many ways of the present state of the Christian church. The superficial spirituality. It's the failure to realize the nature of the life, the conflict in which we are placed, and the absolute necessity to be clothed with the power of the Lord himself and his might and to put on piece by piece the whole armor of God. Indeed, I cannot but recall uh, something which came into my, the realm of my experience, I think it was about 1941. I remember a friend of mine telling me that his wife had been reading a most extraordinary book, which he regarded really as a joke. Now, these were two very fine evangelical people, the husband and the wife. Uh, his wife, he said, had been reading a most amazing book, and it uh, had amused her very much. She thought it was quite fantastic and uh, almost ridiculous. It happened to be Mr. C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. Now, you see, here were evangelical people who had become such strangers to the teaching about the wiles of the devil that when they read a book dealing with that very subject, they think it's almost a joke. They're amazed at this. This seems to them to be a caricature of the Christian life. They thought that Mr. C.S. Lewis had written it entirely to amuse and to entertain. Now, there, you see, is a book which came in to deal with this very subject. He had undergone a certain experience himself and was well read in, especially in allegorical literature, including Bunyan, and had seen the significance of this. I'm saying no more about Mr. C.S. Lewis than that, but at any rate, he had seen that this is a very vital and essential part of the Christian's life while he's in this world. But we've become such strangers to it that his book was regarded as a bit of entertainment and something which was even a joke. Well, now then, that shows us the urgency of dealing with this whole matter. Now, how, how do we approach this subject? Well, it seems to me that, first of all, we must make a general approach to it. Because it's very easy to see how the devil, with all his wiliness and all his subtlety, is able to attack us as believers along these lines. There are certain great watchwords in the New Testament that seem to me to introduce this subject perfectly. You'll find them, this, these words, they come in the Gospels, you've got them everywhere right through the New Testament, and at once they should open our eyes to the whole character of this attack of the devil. 
Here's the first. Watch. Watch ye. Our Lord used that word very frequently. Watch. You find the apostles using it. The apostle Paul in writing to the Corinthians says, Watch ye, which you like men, be strong, be steadfast in the faith. Watch and pray. This great word comes, I say, everywhere in the New Testament. And at once it suggests that there is a very subtle enemy. Any army engaged in warfare always has to put its sentries in position. It always has its watchmen. You never know what the enemy is going to do. You mustn't assume that it's because it's night that he's going to do nothing. He may take advantage of the cover of the darkness. So you post your men and they march backwards and you're watching in all directions. Day and night without intermission. And therefore, you see, the failure on our part to watch, to be aware of this, gives the devil a wonderful opening to come in. And there can be no question at all that there are many people who are defeated by the wiles of the devil simply because they never think about the devil. They don't watch. They say, I've been saved. It's all right. I'm in Christ. I'm resting on him. There's no need to watch. It's all right. He's looking after me. All I do is to keep my eye on him. They're not watching for the enemy. They're not being wary about the wiles of the devil. They don't realize that this is a great warfare. No, no, it's a question of resting. It's all right. Every problem's solved. There's nothing more to do. And the result is, of course, that failing to heed the constantly repeated New Testament exhortation to watch, they are caught and they are defeated. What's the other? Well, the other, of course, is the word itself. The Apostle Paul, for instance, is very careful to tell a man like Timothy, who was such an easy prey to the devil in certain respects, to pay attention to reading, not to forget the scriptures which can make us wise unto salvation. The constant exhortation, then, to be reading the scriptures. And, of course, every one of these New Testament epistles was written because of this very conflict and in order to help people to meet the wiles of the devil. So, if we neglect the reading of the word, we shall certainly be defeated by him. It's a way, the best way of all, perhaps, to watch. Here, you're given teaching which tells you about the various ways in which he can come. Here, you have an authoritative account of his machinations and his wiles and all his subtleties. Very well, the more you know about it, the more easily and quickly you'll be able to detect him at his first move and thereby to stand against him. So the reading of the word is absolutely essential. And Christian people who do not give diligence to the reading of the word are always those who are trapped by the wiles of the devil. It's here you learn about the heresies that we've been considering and the causes of schism and all these other things which the devil does on a big scale. But in the same way, we are given this detailed instruction of what he does to us one by one in this still more personal manner. We are told here to prove all things. Not to believe every spirit, but to try the spirits. How do you do that? You'll never be able to do that if you don't know this word and its teaching. So you see, by encouraging us not to read the word of God, the devil comes in in all his wildness, incidentally, it's a very interesting point to notice about that book, The Screwtape Letters, by Mr. C.S. Lewis. He doesn't deal with this question of not reading the Word, which I think is a very significant point, showing the defect in his teaching. 
He doesn't, uh, this uh, chief of these evil spirits, uh, doesn't in, give any instruction to his underlings to prevent the believers uh, from reading this. But this is the main weapon, as we shall see later. Well, very well, there's a second thing. Then the next thing, of course, is pray. Watch and pray, lest ye fall into temptation, says our Lord. Again, he says that men should always pray and not faint. If you don't pray, you will faint. The Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. Never stop praying. Always be praying. He says it's the only way in which you can keep going. Well, now, we'll find it here also uh, when we come to the end of this particular section that we're considering. Always, he says, in all things uh, with uh, prayer, watching thereunto with all perseverance and uh, supplications for the saints, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Well, again, I needn't emphasize this, need I? It's obvious if the New Testament tells us that we must pray to this extent, that to neglect prayer exposes us immediately to all the wiles and the subtleties of the devil. Our Lord himself spent much of his time in prayer. What for? Well, to fortify himself, to have communion with God, and to be given light and instruction, and to be blessed in his own spirit. And so we get this constant Injunction and exhortation to be instant in prayer, out of season, in season. All this is to go on always, and the neglect of it at once exposes us to the wiles of the devil. And the last thing I would mention is self-examination. Examine your own selves, says the apostle. Prove your own selves, whether he be in the faith or not. Now he writes that, you see, to believers. But that's gone out of practice, isn't it? We don't believe in self-examination any longer. We say you mustn't look at yourself. Look to the Lord. If you look at yourself, you make yourself miserable. Look to the Lord. Always be looking out. And as we shall see as we go along, the neglect of self-examination is probably one of the greatest causes of defeat in the Christian life. Now, the point I'm making is this, that the devil, therefore, obviously will attack us along these particular lines. If he can discourage our watching, all is going to be well from his standpoint. If he causes us to neglect the reading of the word and the study of the word and the understanding of the word, it will suit him admirably. If he causes us to neglect praying, well, we shall faint, and in that condition we are very easy and obvious prey to him. Self-examination. Everything all right, like the people in the church of Laodicea, doing well, rich, everything wonderful. Church never doing so well, but actually poor and wretched and blind. They hadn't examined themselves. They didn't know that they were blind. They didn't realize they were naked. There is nothing more terrible than the neglect of self-examination. So the devil, in his wiles, comes to us and does his utmost to discourage us at every one of these special points. And it's a question that we should therefore ask ourselves this morning. How do we emerge as the, in the light of this examination? Are we watching and watching unto prayer? Are we diligent in our reading of the Bible? Are we examining ourselves? Do we ever take a kind of spiritual stock-taking to discover where we are? 
Any teaching or any view that we may hold that discourages any one of these things or a superficial performance of any one of these things is a manifestation of the wiles of the devil. If you really think that just to read a few verses and a short comment on it in a matter of five minutes and a brief word of prayer is adequate for you a day, well then I say you don't know anything about the wiles of the devil. That is not the exhortation of the, of the New Testament. That has not been the practice of the saints throughout the centuries. But a superficial spirituality imagines that that's enough. Read my portion, had my prayers, I'm all right. Just go on. And not aware of any stagnation in the soul, not aware of a lack of growth, not aware of an appalling superficiality. This is nothing but a very wonderful manifestation of the wiles of the devil. He's come as an angel of light. And he said, oh, that's enough. Just a little. Other people don't read at all. You are really very good. There are many nominal Christians who never read the scriptures at all. Ah, you are a scripture reader. Very well. You are all right. And because you've read just a few verses, you've read your scriptures. And you know the word of God. I'm not surprised that there's a campaign against superficial Bible reading. It's needed very badly. Anything that encourages a superficial performance of any one of these things is always a manifestation of the wiles of the devil. But now let me move on, and having looked at it in a very general way, I'm just giving a general introduction this morning. Let us consider something of the roots of attack, the roots along which he attacks. You see, this is a matter of strategy, isn't it? There's nothing more important in a war than to consider the roots of attack. That's why we very nearly lost the last war. The French, you see, stopped their Maginot line at Sedan and neglected from there along the Belgian border right to the sea, not realizing that the Germans had always come through the other route and would always do so. But if you neglect a study of the roots of attack, well, it's very obvious, isn't it, that you're likely to be defeated. And the devil has got certain roots which he follows very regularly. Clever though he is, he lacks originality in this respect. And, of course, the roots are obvious. And the roots, the three main roots are these. First of all, the mind. That's the chief root, because in many ways it's the most important one. If he can get us wrong there, well, we're going to be wrong everywhere else. Because the highest thing in men is his mind. And that is why the devil makes this particular attack upon the mind. And then, of course, he comes along the line of experience. There's another great realm of our life in this world, the realm of experience. Where we are not so much concerned about intellectual understanding and formulation of truth. But uh, the more experiential aspect, and a great deal of our lives is lived in the realm of experience, feelings, sensations, sensibilities, desires, and all these things, moods, states, oh, how much of our life is governed by this whole realm of experience. There's something more elemental about this, even than the mind, and a man should always be struggling to attain a mastery of this aspect by the mind and the understanding. And it's our failure to do that, as we shall be seeing, that accounts 
for so many of our troubles. So the devil attacks us along the line of the experience. And the third is, of course, the practice. Our behavior, our conduct, the things we do and the things that we don't do. You see, there is a man's life in a sense, isn't it? His outlook, his thought, his rationalizing. And then this realm of experience, and then what we actually do in practice, very largely as the result of the other two. Well now, it's of vital importance for us to realize that the devil attacks us along the three lines. He doesn't confine himself to one. He'll attack us anywhere. That's the great principle we've got to get hold of. We must not assume that he's always going to come in the same way. If you are only preparing in that way, he'll suddenly come this way. If you, as it were, are guarding your front door only, you'll come in at the back door. If you think you've got rid of him through the windows in the front, you'll be in through the windows at the back, from every conceivable direction. It's not surprising that the apostle says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, not one, but many, myriads of them, against powers, almost an endless number, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is why I was at such pains to give you a description of what the Bible tells us about the character of this enemy. The number of emissaries, the agencies, the forms, the guises, the different appearances, they, they almost baffle description. And they can come at any point and in any way. But there are the three main routes which can be subdivided almost endlessly. I'm not going to do that. We haven't got the time. But I am trying to deal with the big and the broad principles. Well, now, having seen that there are three main lines of attack, it is very interesting to observe how he uses these three main lines of attack. And again, there is a broad classification. The first is that he produces a lack of balance between these three aspects of our life. And the other is that taking them individually, he makes us give either too much or too little attention to each one of them. Now there, it seems to me, is the big principles which are the big principles which we should hold in our minds. Here are the roots, the mind, the experience, and the practice. Now, what does he do? Well, looking at it very broadly, here's your main classification. His first object is to get a lack of balance in the three. Then, the second is, taking them one by one, he will either make us do too much in this respect or too little. It's amazing to me on reflection and meditation, and I've been spending much time over this recently, how you will find that that is almost invariably what he does. Of course, he varies the me mechanism. The devil's mechanism and mode of attack is very similar to some of these blocks that you can buy to s save your car from theft or robbery or something like that. They tell you, now, yeah, you've got uh, a possible 3,000 combinations. This thing can be put into, a, into such a way that there are 3,000 possible combinations. And it's going to be a very great accident if the robber will know the exact combination that you're using. Well, now, I'm using that as an illustration to show you that while there is one principle, as it were, the variations within that can be almost endless. But those are the two big divisions. And I want just to touch on the first this morning. 
The wiles of the devil as they're displayed in producing a lack of balance in the Christian life as between the mind and the experience and the practice. Now, there is no more frequent or fruitful manifestation of the wiles of the devil than justness. Indeed, in dealing with the heresies and the apostasy and the schism and the cults, we've seen very clearly that that is ultimately how the devil produces every one of those. It is ultimately due to some one-sided emphasis somewhere or another. You see, the cults thrive on the desire for experience. That's where they come in. And as we saw, many of the schisms have been due to a lack of balance in the matter of the mind and of the intellect. Well, there it is. So the devil pays particular attention to this aspect. His desire is, I say, to produce an imbalance. Oh, this question of balance is in many ways the most important of all in the Christian life. It's important in every realm of life. Even physically it's important. The right amount of time and attention you give to your mind and to your body. You neglect your body and eventually your mind won't function so well. The balance, the mind and the body, mind or the matter as we put it. How important balance is. Take the question of diet. It's a great theme today. Balanced diet. Not too much of any one ingredient. Get the right proportions. If you want to be really healthy, you've got to get a balanced diet. And so on. It's the same everywhere. Whether you're defending your country, how much to put into your army, how much into your navy, how much into your air force. And it's constantly changing. But you've always got to have your balance so that the country can act and behave as a whole. Now, it's exactly like that in the Christian life. And the devil knows that. And the simplest thing in the world for him is to just get us to be a bit imbalanced, to lack this balance. The Christian life, if you like, can be considered as a three-legged stool. And they've got to be the right size if you're to get your balance and to go on comfortably. Now, let me explain what I mean. There are some, you see, who are persuaded to give exclusive attention to the mind and to the knowledge only. These are the people who are out for ideas. They're intellectualists. Nothing matters to them about uh, but knowledge. And they spend their time in reading and in studying and in garnering a great amount of knowledge. They're not interested in feelings. Any fool can feel, they say. Any fool can have emotions and be emotional. No, no, they're men of mind and of knowledge and of understanding. And they discount the experimental side. It's almost trivial. And in practice, well, of course, they wouldn't deny that practice is important, but they're too busy reading to be very concerned about practice. In other words, the devil has wrought havoc in the church in general as well as in individuals so often throughout the centuries by producing a kind of scholasticism. You know, it's interesting to draw graphs of the history of the church. You get a great revival, outpouring of the Spirit of God, great light and understanding, marvelous experience, practice following, and then perhaps certain excesses tend to come in, so people very rightly begin to say, well now, we must have teaching, we must control this, we must have the mind enlightened, so they put great emphasis upon teaching. And you know, in less than a hundred years, you will find that you've got as dry, dry as dust and an utterly dead orthodox scholasticism, spending the whole of the time in dotting the I's, crossing the T's, a perfect system, all intellect, all mind, 
the great living doctrine has been hardened into a kind of sterile scholasticism which is useless and valueless. Boasting about its orthodoxy but dead. Not ever seeing any conversions, never seeing people really being built up and moved by the truth. Purely a matter of the mind. Now, this is a very real danger, and it's a danger to us one by one. There are many people whose view of Christianity is purely intellectual. It was Lord Melbourne, I believe, Queen Victoria's first Prime Minister, who said on one occasion, he said things are coming to a very pretty pass if religion's going to start being personal. Now, that's a typical attitude, isn't it? Religion, personal, nonsense. Going to church is a part of the social round. You don't become personal about these things. It's a right thing, of course, to go and worship God, but you mustn't become personal about this. And, of course, the same thing happened in the 18th century. The great charge that was brought against Whitfield and the Wesleys and others was this charge of enthusiasm, fanaticism. These people get excited about their religion, they said. They're manifesting feeling. Here they are, they said, this this isn't Christianity. Christianity is the most dignified thing in the world, the most orderly thing in the world. You mustn't do things like that. It's something grand and noble and magnificent. Decorum is of the very essence of... And these people are getting excited about their religion. This is sure enthusiasm. And so they try to stop the preaching of those men of God who are filled with the Spirit. Now, that can happen to every one of us. And it does tend to happen to some of us, particularly at this point. You see, we're all intellect, kind of spiritual tadpoles, all head, and no real body, and none of this symmetry which I'm trying to describe to you. Now, that's one danger. The other danger, the next danger, of course, is that people put the whole emphasis upon experience. They're interested only in emotions and in feelings. Oh, they say, look at those people. They seem to have a head full of knowledge, but they're useless. Look at them. They never seem to feel anything at all. They're talking about these great things, but they're talking about them as if they were talking about geometry. They're not moved. It's a system. Utterly mechanical. Why, they say, why don't they shout out sometimes? Why don't they let themselves go? Why don't they feel something? And you see, these people think that a meeting is of no value at all unless there's been a great deal of shouting and exclamation and a kind of riot of the emotions. Now, you see where the subtlety of the devil comes in. Emotion is a vital part of, the, of Christian faith, but emotionalism is not. And so it reacts, you see, always. The first people are so afraid of emotionalism that they crush emotion altogether. And the third people tend to do the same thing. But these people, this second group, they think of it all solely in terms of what they feel. Sensations and sensibilities. They're not interested in exposition. They don't want understanding. But if they're made to feel something and have a thrill, then it's wonderful. They look for feelings only, and they judge everything solely by this standard, this measure of feeling and sensibility and emotion. And alas, that kind of tendency is often, often ministered unto. Things are done deliberately to work them up. Singing, hand-clapping, shouting, affecting illustrations, moving on the emotions, direct pressure on the emotions. All that, that's the devil coming in just to get these people to lose their balance. And how often does it happen? We are all liable to this, some of us more than others. And then the third line is the realm of practice. Here are the practical people. 
They're not interested in this theology and doctrine. They're very suspicious of these emotional people. They're hard-headed men. And they say what's needed is to do something. With the world as it is, what are you doing about it? All right, you have your theories if you like, but I'm concerned to do something, to put things right. And so they give the whole of their emphasis to practice, to conduct, behavior, morality. No, no, they have no time for all this reading and studying and doctrine and so on. And these other people get so excited. No, no, the, the man who really matters in life is a man who really gets things done. A man of his word, an honest man, a good man, a moral man, a man who does good, especially with the world as it is today. What's the point of preaching about all these high doctrines with all these problems teeming round and about us? The statesmen failing us, the clash of nations and within nations. And here you are talking about these great high doctrines and about fear. Why don't you do something? And here they are doing things and thinking that that is the whole of Christianity. Well, now then, there you see are the ways in which the devil by his wiles comes in and upsets the balance. Why is all this wrong? Why is every one of those wrong? Because that is the truth. Every one of them is wrong. If you put all your emphasis on the mind, you're wrong. If you put it all on experience, you're wrong. If you put it all into practice, you're wrong. Why? Well, for these reasons. That is entirely lacking in the balance that we always find in the scriptures. The scriptures are always characterized by balance. How often have I said this? Take, make an analysis of any one you like of the New Testament epistles. What do you find? You find this. A kind of preliminary salutation. Affectionate. Experience. Emotion. Then a great display of doctrine. Reminding them of the truth. And then, therefore, application, practice. Every time, invariable. There is not a single book in the Bible but that it's characterized by this very balance. It's everywhere. It is the great characteristic of the biblical teaching. Every side and aspect and part of man is catered for. Book of Revelation as well as others, it's there, it's everywhere. So that if we are lacking in this balance, we are unlike the scripture. We are not conforming to the pattern. But another serious defect about this lack of balance is this. It shows that the person concerned has completely failed to see the inevitable relationship between the three. He's wrong about the three. How do you prove that, says someone? Well, I do it very simply like this. If you've got the true view of the truth, well, then I say you must feel it. If you don't, you haven't got the true view. Look at it like this. Do you really believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? And that he gave his body to be broken and his blood to be shed that you might be forgiven. You say you believe that. You believe in the substitutionary view of the atonement. That the Son of God loved you to that extent. All right. If you tell me that you felt nothing, I say that you haven't believed it. You haven't seen it. For love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, what happens to me? Do I sit in my calm intellectualism? Not a bit of it. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride, intellectual as well as other. If you've really seen this truth, you are moved to the depth of your being. And not only that, you're going to do something about it. 
Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. If you believe that he died like that in order to save you from sin, can you go on sinning? You see, it's not logical apart from anything else. So that there is no value in saying that you see this great truth if your feelings are not engaged and you're not moved emotionally and if you're not moved to action. It's a complete failure to see the inevitable relationship between the three. But still more serious. It implies a failure to submit ourselves to God's way of dealing with men and delivering it. What is God's way? Well, God's way is to deal with the whole man. And that's why Christianity differs from the cults. I was showing you that last Sunday. The cults never deal with the whole man. They only deal with parts of us. Everything false only deals with a part. The glory of this and the way in which you can test yourself as to whether you believe the true gospel or not is this. Is the whole of you taken up? Is the whole man involved? If not, there's something wrong. The devil has got you with his wiles. So that if a man comes to me and says, I'm not interested in my feelings, all I say to him is this, very well then, what you think is your salvation is yours, it isn't God's. God is as anxious to save your feelings as he is to save your mind. If a man says, I really can't be bothered about what I do in practice, I say the same thing to him. Our old man was crucified with him, says Paul in Romans 6, 6, what for? That the body of sin might be destroyed, that we might no longer serve sin. If on the other end a man comes to me and says, you know, I'm not interested at all in theology, doctrines, all this time you're taking, working through, I'm not a bit interested. All right, my friend, you may not be, but all I've got to say to you is this, that what you are dismissing and despising and rejecting is what God has provided for you. You have no right to say that you are not interested in the mind. God has given you a mind. And if you are not using your mind and disciplining yourself to study the scripture and to read everything you can that will help you to read the scripture, you are refusing and spurning God's own gift. You're insulting him. It's his way of salvation to save the whole men and not simply parts of men. We have no right to pick and choose. God's way of salvation in Christ takes up the intellect, the heart, emotions, the will, the understanding, the sensibilities, the experience, the practice, everything, the whole man, even the body eventually. And if you and I pick and choose, we're insulting God and throwing back into his face one of his gifts or one aspect or another of his great salvation. And finally, this means, of course, that we are bringing the gospel in the name of God himself somehow or another into disrepute. You see, this is God's purpose, that he shall have these new men made in the image of Christ, having the balance that he had between the mind and the experience and the practice, we are meant to be like him, to conform to his image. And if we don't, if we are lopsided or imbalanced or truncated Christians, I say we are bringing God's work in Christ into disrepute. 
We are failing to glorify him as we ought. Glorify him, says the Apostle Paul, with your mind and with your body, whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all things to the glory of God, whether it is the eating or drinking or anything, everything to the glory of God, the whole man, the entire personality. And if we fail to do that, we are not only succumbing to the wiles of the devil, we are detracting from the glory of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, there's nothing more marvelous, I say, about this salvation than its perfect balance. The Christian is a man who knows in whom he has believed. He's able to give a reason for the hope that is in him. He rejoices in the truth. He rejoices in the Lord Jesus Christ with a joy unspeakable and full of glory. And he is doing his utmost to be holy because God is holy. He's got a vision of the everlasting glory ahead of him. And he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself even as he is pure. Can't you see why it must of necessity be one of the main objects and objectives of the devil to upset this balance and to make us all this or all that or all the other? No, no, it's to be all together, ever, only, all, for the Amen. The closing hymn is hymn number 438, 438. O thou who camest from above, the pure celestial fire to impart, kindle a flame of sacred love on the mean altar of my heart. 438.